I don't know how much you remember from your childhood or what things you remember, but one of the things that I remember is something my brother and I used to do in the afternoons when we were young kids. We would watch a TV show called To Tell the Truth. Now, I don't know if you ever saw the show, but I've thought about this a lot. Uh, they would have four panelists, uh, oftentimes in those days, celebrities that were well-known names, and this panel of four people would welcome each show three challengers, they would call themselves challengers, number one, number two, number three. They would all walk out, they would all say, my name is, it would all be the same name, and then they would either speak about an experience they had or a vocation. So I remember one particular episode is these three people walked out and said, my name is such and such, and I've seen the Loch Ness Monster. I remember thinking, that's amazing. <laughs> so, of course, then the panelists, the rest, almost the rest of the show, was that they would ask questions to each one of the three contestants, and they would say, uh, tell me, uh, when you saw the Loch Ness Monster, what, what, you know, and they would ask them questions, they would try and figure out who was the real person that had had that experience and who were the other two that were imposters? Now, sometimes the imposters were really bad imposters. So it was really easy to tell. But other times the imposters were incredible, their ability to deceive you. But the way the show always ended is that the panelists would each select who they thought was the real one and then they would end the show by saying, will the real so-and-so please stand up? And when they did, sometimes I would go, oh. and other times I would go, that's who I picked. But sometimes it was so easy to get fooled. Now, I, I mention this because we're resuming our study in John's gospel today. If you haven't been with us before, that's okay. I, I think you'll find that every encounter we study this fall, you'll feel like you can start right where you are. But if you were with us, you know that at early in January or February last year, we started making our way through John's gospel. And we're in this series that we're calling Encountering Christ. And there's a lot of ways to study John's gospel. The way that we're doing it is as we study, we've said there's a lot of encounters that Jesus has with people in this gospel. Let's study these encounters in the hope that maybe we can encounter Jesus too. And as we do, we can decide whether or not we believe in him or whether or not we'll follow him as well. So we've been doing that. Now, on this first half of the banners, you'll note that in the first 11 chapters of John, all these different encounters were interpreted artistically up here in this banner. And if you have time after this service, I invite you to go up and look. You can see in this incredible picture those embedded there. But today we start on the second half as we start chapter 12. And I won't tell you uh, what this is a, a, a painting of, but you can come up and look at it after the service. And I think you'll see after the message how it relates artistically to what we've been talking about. And each week we invite you to just watch how this unfolds. So today... If you're following along in the notes, here's what I want you to see about this encounter. First, this encounter occurs the week before Jesus' crucifixion. This encounter occurs the week before Jesus' crucifixion. By the way, I forget, did, I, did I invite you to open your Bibles yet? I don't think I did. Why don't you open your Bibles to John chapter 12? And again, it's about three-fourths of the way back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to look at John 12, 1 through 11 this morning. But this encounter occurs the week before Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, once you open there, you'll see that the first part of the sentence of that first verse says, six days before the Passover, 
Jesus arrived at Bethany. This Passover would be the last meal that Jesus would have with his disciples. The next day, he would be crucified on a cross. So it tells us that now we're down to the last week. And these chapters we're going to be studying are going to be all about this last week of Jesus' life and eventually his death and resurrection. So just so you know, that's when this occurs. And in a way, it's kind of amazing that this happens the last week. Let me explain. If you're looking at the next line, notice this. For three years, Judas blends in and fools everyone but Jesus. For three whole years, one of Jesus' own disciples, one of the twelve, a man that we're reading today is called Judas Iscariot, had blended in so perfectly. I mean, you want to talk about someone who's skilled at being an imposter. He had blended in so perfectly, and he had fooled everyone, including the disciples. And I'll explain more about that later. The only person he hadn't fooled was Jesus. All the way back when Steve taught on the feeding of the 5,000 miracle in John chapter 6, if you look at the last few verses of that chapter, you'll see that Jesus ends that by saying, one of you is a devil. And he was referring to Judas, who would later betray him. So Jesus was already on to this guy. He already knew that this guy was an imposter. But the other disciples didn't know who it was. He said that, but they didn't put it together. They didn't go, oh, we know exactly who it is. No, they were like the panel that sometimes gets fooled. They didn't know. Now, how is that possible? I've heard people say, oh my goodness, if someone were to spend three years with Jesus, they would all believe I no longer believe that. Sometimes people have said, how could someone go to a church where the Bible is taught so well, so clearly, where people are genuine, they love Christ, they sing from a heart that's sincere. How can people go to a church like that every week and yet for years never really follow Christ themselves, just continue to live a double life? How is that possible? This is what we're going to talk about today. This is what we're going to study in John chapter 12. And the reason why this relates so much to us is because, friends, our church family is growing. And the temptation is to believe that just because we have these rooms filled with people and children downstairs doing the same, that everybody's here because they want to follow Jesus. But you know better, don't you? I know better than that. There are some people who, again, by their own admission, would tell you, no, no, I'm not here to follow Jesus. I'm here to investigate more about Jesus because I don't even know yet where I'm at with Jesus. And I just want to tell you, I'm glad you're here. I really am. That's a noble thing. And I hope God will help you in your investigating. And we want to be the kind of church that is open to your questions and not defensive, or, but, I'm, but we're really interested in helping you. But there are other people that are here who you're, you're interested because as we talk about moving from shallow to mature, you really do want to move from shallow to mature. You want to know Jesus better. You want to figure out what he wants to do with your life and how that can look different every day if he's in charge. There's others of you, though, that are living a double life. You come week after week, and it doesn't phase you that you're living a phony imposter life. And again, I, I just lived long enough, and you know this is true. This, this happens in every church. And then there are some. The Bible says, is who are wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus put it that way. Who, they are false followers of Christ, and they really only see a church as something they can use or devour or to mess up. And the evil one often works that way. 
Jesus once told a parable about the wheat and the tares. That's another word for weeds. And he says that there in the Middle East, there were weeds that looked so much like wheat that when they would grow up, it was hard to tell which one was wheat, which one was weeds. But Jesus says, I'm going to allow those, my father's going to allow those to grow alongside of each other. But there's coming a day when they'll be separated and the wheat will be seen for what it is and the weeds will be seen for what they are. And that separation process is coming. Now, bring all this up because what I want you to see is that just like in the show, to tell the truth, sooner or later, the truth is coming out about you and me. Sooner or later. It may take longer for some people. It may be a matter of time. But where we really are with Jesus, where we really are with him, will come out. It just will. And the verse that I've been thinking about a lot this week as I've looked at this encounter is listed there in that first gray box. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount that we studied a few years ago, Matthew 6, 24. Would you read it out loud with me, please? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. No one can serve two masters. I just want to step over here a little ways. I just want to get a little far enough away that that way Jesus won't hear what I'm going to say. I don't know if Jesus is right about that. I mean, I've, I've tried it. I've tried to serve two masters, and it's, it's kind of worked for me sometimes. And what, what does Jesus mean? I mean, I find it really attractive to be interested in Jesus and some other things. I mean, for real? Now, you've probably thought that before. I have. But Jesus says there has never been anyone in history, and there never will be, who can pull that off. It's impossible. Because sooner or later, what you really love will come out. And what you really are devoted to will come out. It's just a matter of time. You cannot serve two masters. But Judas seemed to be doing that, didn't he? And so what do we learn about this? So I want to talk about this encounter and and talk about how it might apply to our life. So would you pray with me before we dig into this? Lord, how is it possible that Judas was able to see all the miracles, even be involved in your ministry, to get a chance to eat with you and hear you say the words we just read out loud and yet be absolutely an imposter? These are mysteries we don't fully understand, but we pray that as we open your word now that you might show us how this applies to our lives today. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so let me start reading through. Jenny's already read some of this, but let me pick it up. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. If you weren't here before, all you have to do is on your own. You can turn back to chapter 11, read that account. It's unbelievable. Jesus raises a man who had been dead for four days from the dead to life. Incredible. And now, what's interesting is, is that this guy is actually sitting at this encounter, okay? Here it is, verse 2. Here at the dinner, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, she's Lazarus' sister, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. 
Then Mary, this is the other sister of Lazarus. We learned this back in chapter 11. Then Mary, look at this, took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Wow. Now again, I have taught more on Mary's whole response to Jesus, and we could do a whole message just on the encounter she had with Jesus and Jesus had with her. But because I've spoken on that before, if you ever want to listen to that in more detail, because it's an incredible passage to study, that's Palm Sunday 2011 on our website. You can, you can take more time and listen to that. But today I want to talk to you about Judas. Notice the very first thing that happens is that in verse 4, we're going to read Judas's first words chronologically in all the Gospels in the timeline of Jesus' three years with him. This is the first time we ever hear Judas talk. Don't you wonder what he's going to say? Look at verse 4. It says this, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. In fact, would you read uh, that, that, those two verses with me? I've listed in the gray box, so I, actually I'll let you join me. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And if you're following along in the notes, Judas objects to the way Mary honors Jesus. Judas objects to the way Mary honors Jesus. Let me just try and, and, and think with you about what happened. It says she took a pint of pure nard. How big is a pint? Some of you know how big a pint is because you carry these around once in a while. This is a Starbucks cup, and it's about this size. And it says a pure nard. Most scholars believe that this nard was a perfume that was made from the herbs and leaves found in the mountains of the Himalayas in India. So it was not easy to get to, it was not easy to find, and it had a unique fragrance and smell to it. And so she took this, this size. Now in those days, an heirloom like this or something this expensive, this, as we're going to see, it's very, very expensive, was probably meant for her burial. In those days, before embalming and other kinds of things like that, people used fragrant things like that to embalm bodies. So this was probably either for Mary or one of her family members. Maybe, again, you know, it was for someone else, but it was hers. So now, as she thinks of what Jesus has done in her life, she is so overwhelmed with gratitude. She wants to honor Jesus in such a way that she brings it and she pours it, not just a little bit out, not half, all, all of it. The whole thing. And I, I'm, can you imagine? Whew, it says the fragrance filled the house. But then we read these words from Judas, these words that are critical, these words that object, these words that go, that was a bad decision. And we go, wow. It's the first thing we hear from this guy. Now out to the right, I've listed Matthew 26 and Mark 14. Because if you want to read the other accounts in the Gospels of this same event, you can read and it'll fill in more details for you. Now some people say, what about Luke 7 where Jesus gets anointed by a woman? That's a different story, so don't confuse those. But here is the accounts, okay? So Mark uh, 14 and Matthew 26. Now in those, it tells us that when Judas objects, he's not alone. Matthew and Mark's Gospel tell us that some of the other people that were at the dinner party there, they object too. 
And also, some of it says that some of the disciples joined in. But John tells us that Judas was the ringleader. So Judas, he, he objects like this. Friends, have you ever found yourself critical of the way someone else follows Jesus? Some, the way someone else honors Jesus? When I was in college, I had the most incredible roommate. He had such a pure relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying he was, on, I'm saying he was perfect, but he had just such a great heart for the Lord, so humble, that there were times I could not stand it. I don't know if you can relate to this, but there were times I found myself going, oh. I found this critical spirit rising up. What was my problem? It wasn't about me, was it? I think it was. See, but here's what I want to ask you. What is Judas doing objecting? Last I checked, this wasn't any of his business. Whose dinner party was this to honor anyway? It's about honoring Jesus. But now Judas has got to like jump in and say how this should go. And this wasn't even his action, this was Mary's. And friends, be careful because sometimes when we're fakes, we've got to comment on everybody else but ourselves. Judas does that. He objects. But it goes on, and what I want you to see here is that Judas acts concerned, if you're following along. He acts concerned. And then, you know how I make mistakes sometimes when I'm putting these message notes together? Here's a, here's a really good one. I couldn't make up my mind whether I wanted to say and or but. So I meant to say but, but I left the and, okay? So if you could graciously remove the and by crossing it out, then I won't feel so bad, okay? Judas acts concerned, but he's really a thief. Now again, John didn't know this at the time. This is based on hindsight. John was the last of the four gospel writers to write his gospel. This is written 50 or 60 years after this event. And now John has the benefit of hindsight. He has the benefit of learning what happened to Judas, and they found out more about him. But this didn't happen at a time. The disciples did not realize all this stuff. But look at verse 6. It says this. He did not say this because he was poor. Uh, he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Wow! So, help me understand. Jesus, knowing that this guy was an imposter, let him be the treasurer of the money bag? Wow. Did Judas have some natural gifts with finances or what? We do know one thing. Whatever gifts he had, they were mainly in feathering his own nest. They were mainly in skimming some off the top. Wow. That's an interesting thing. And they found out later just how much he was doing that. So the reason why he's objecting is not because he cares about the poor. He sees an opportunity going away for himself. Isn't that interesting? The next thing I hope you'll see if you're following along in the notes is that Jesus defends Mary and says, you won't always have me. Jesus defends Mary and says, you won't always have me. Look at these verses, verse 7 and 8. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. Again, it's just a mild, gentle rebuke. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. In some of the other gospel translations, it says, she prepared my body beforehand. She's, she's doing something. She's preparing me. This is honoring to me. Okay, verse 8, 
You will always have the poor among you. This is quoting Deuteronomy 15.11, by the way. This is found in the Old Testament. You will always have the poor among you. Have you noticed that? You could hand a group of money to a group of people, and within a short period of time, some would be rich, some would be poor. There will always be the poor. Sometimes because of reasons beyond their control, oftentimes because of reasons of mismanagement. You always have the poor among you. He's not saying, therefore, don't do anything about it. He's saying, but listen, you will not always have me. He's saying, look, if you're the real deal, you're going to have more opportunities to help the poor. They're not going anywhere. But I'm leaving in a week. I'm dying on the cross. When that happens, that opportunity is going to go away. Have you ever noticed that some opportunities never come again? And Jesus is just saying to him, Judas, you're missing an opportunity. She didn't miss it. You're so caught up with something else than me. You're missing me. Does that bother you? Wow. Well, what's interesting is after this conversation, notice what happens in verse 9 through 11. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. All this to say that Jesus has enemies. We've been learning that. The heat is getting turned up on him. People hate his guts. Some people go, that's, wow, why? Because he was revealing their hearts and they did not like it. And they wanted to kill him. Now, I tell you all this because the next line in the notes may make more sense now. And that is this, that it's right after this, Judas looks for a way to betray Jesus. It's right after this that Judas looks for a way to betray Jesus. What, what do we mean by that? If you look at Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, they record the same thing, and then notice what happens immediately after it's over. Look at Mark 14, 10, 11. Again, I put it out there on your notes if you want to look at it later. Then Judas Iscariot, when? Right after this meal was over. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests, remember his enemies? To betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him, what friends? Money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Whew. Notice what happens Judas hands Jesus over, if you're following along. Judas hands Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. Judas hands Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. Look at Matthew 26. Again, here's the other account. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the other priest, the chief priest, and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, and from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand them over. This was the price of a slave. It wasn't even all that much money. But they counted out 30 pieces of silver.
And Judas went back and blended in and acted like a follower of Jesus. And he had what he was looking for. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You may try, but you can't do it. Sooner or later, who you really are and what you really value, your true master is going to come out. It's going to be obvious. So what do we do in this situation? How can we learn from this? Well, if you're following along in the notes, here's some thoughts. I want to ask you a question, first of all. Is Jesus Judas' master or the love of money? Is Jesus Jesus, Judas' master or is the love of money his master? You know, don't you, that the Bible doesn't say that there's anything wrong with money. You know that, don't you? The Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with money. It says that the love of money is the problem. Man, do we live in a country that loves money and that everywhere we turn is urging us to love money too. Oh my goodness. Do you know where that leads? 1 Timothy 6 talks about this. It says, those who want to get rich, know anybody? Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Do you all know how Judas Iscariot died? He committed suicide. He pierced himself with many griefs but he would not let go when it counted. You know, there's another group of people that were around Jesus, these people that wanted to kill him. Did you know that it's kind of related to the same thing? Look at Luke 16. We've already read it from Matthew's gospel. Look at what the same verse says in Luke's gospel. No one can serve two masters. Jesus, you must really think this is important for us to know. No one can serve two masters. Either you will love the one, hate the one, and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay, I got that, Jesus. The Pharisees, who loved money, sneered, um, when they heard this, were sneering at Jesus. Can you picture this? Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Wow. And then he said this. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Whew. Wow. And that leads us to this second thing I, I hope you'll see, is that Mary's worship is fragrant to God. Mary's worship is fragrant. Judas' worship, can I take a little liberty here? Stinks. Mary's worship is fragrant. It not only fills the house, but it's fragrant because it smells beautiful to God too. 
Why? Because it's not coming from a perfect heart. It's coming from a genuine heart. It's coming from an authentic heart that says, Jesus, out of tremendous gratitude and thanks to you, I want you to have what's precious to me. Because you're more precious than this. But Judas, Judas acts like he is concerned about what God's cared about, but he's a phony. He's a fake. And that kind of stuff stinks to God. It smells rotten. And I don't know if you've ever had this kind of stuff happen in your own life, but this comes very close in our family. I think I've told some of you this before, but my grandfather on my father's side grew up in a very abusive home. His dad went to church, said hallelujah louder than anybody else. They were in church services all the time, but he had the tar beat out of him regularly as a kid. And it was so bad that when he was 13, he was kicked out of the house and forced to, to make, make a way for himself. This scarred my grandpa deeply and made him a very private, turned-in person. He eventually married my grandma when he was about 27 years old. And then in his late 30s or 40s, because they went regularly to church still, although it was difficult for him, he had gone to church most of his life, but he had never, ever trusted in Jesus. Make sense? But there came a new pastor to town. And when this pastor arrived, he came after the church had just split. So as he got going, he began to preach. And my dad said, he was a college student at the time, he said, Jeff, the only way I can describe hearing this man preach is that he spoke and looked like an angel when he spoke. It was powerful. And as he spoke of, of Jesus, my grandfather, for the first time in his life, said, I, I believe that about Jesus. And he opened his heart to Jesus and he turned his life over to Jesus in repentance and faith. I will be forever grateful that my grandpa trusted Christ. Well, this pastor wasn't there a whole long time. He eventually left and the circumstances around his leaving were kind of strange, actually. Uh, he went to a church in Nebraska. He was married and had children, so he goes to this church in Nebraska. And when he gets there, he has unbelievable response to his preaching. In the first year alone, he baptizes 90 people in a small town. It's an amazing thing. And he received the Pastor of the Year Award from his denomination. He was only there for a few years, and then, again, circumstances were kind of hard to understand and explain, but then he goes to a church in Omaha, Nebraska, and the first six months he's there, same thing begins to happen. His wife finally comes to him and says, I can no longer live this lie you're making me live. I am going to tell the truth about you. So he locked her in their bedroom and he set the room on fire. She was having a nervous breakdown, so she somehow survived that, somehow was able to escape. They take her to a hospital, a mental ward. One night during the night, without the doctor's permission, he picks her out of bed, carries her, brings her home. He's in the middle of a revival meeting at this time, preaching every night. And when he comes home one of those nights, according to his report, he found his wife dead in their bed, shot with a deer rifle. What eventually came out about this guy is the reason why he had to keep leaving is because he was having inappropriate sexual relationships with women and teenage girls in every one of these churches. 
One pastor, a friend of my dad's, said that he followed this pastor in Nebraska, and he had nine women alone come forward and say that they had had sex with this pastor. That was just the ones that came forward. Wow. Eventually, his daughter grew up, and when she became older, she started to piece together how her mother had died. And she realized that the size and frame of her mother would have never, ever been possible for her to pull a trigger underneath her chin with a deer rifle. The length was just such. And so she began to investigate more and more, and she began to tell her father, I'm on to you, and I am going to expose you, and I'm going to get this case opened again. And as she did that, she would put notes on his windshield wiper regularly, telling him more stuff she was finding out about him. So one day, he walked out into the woods, and he committed suicide. How is that possible? How does that work? One of Jesus' own twelve was an expert imposter. And I don't know about when I hear messages like this, I don't know about you, but I go, man, I don't want to be Judas. But how could he? Yeah, too bad for Judas. But you know what Jesus wants to say to us this morning? I'll take care of Judas. Is there any way that you are being counterfeit or fake? Jeff, you ever struggle with this? I've struggled with this. I remember when I became a Christian as a teenager, I really did come to know Jesus. I really did. But within six to 12 months, I began to have ill-advised, biblically disobedient dating relationships with other people. And I was not doing what Jesus wanted me to do, but I was still leading the singing and youth group. And it smelled terribly to God. And I affected other people. I wish I could tell you that was it. But I've tried to be honest with you all along the way that it is tempting to try and be fake sometimes, to hold on to things and grab for things for ourselves. And so I have found myself regularly having to deal with counterfeit Christian following it myself at times. And you know the only way you and I know that we're genuine when that happens is how we respond. Do we go, that's it, that's it. I will not hold on to this stuff anymore. If I really am genuine, I will hand it over to Jesus because if I don't hand it over to Jesus, I'm handing Jesus over. Man, that's so powerful. And so what do you and I do? Here's this last sentence in this section. I hope you'll see it. Why was Mary able? She wasn't a perfect follower of Jesus, but why was she able to do this? As Jesus had taught Mary, only one thing is necessary. This is a great story. You know, Mary, the one that brought this expensive perfume, she had a history with Jesus. Did you know she had had an experience with Jesus earlier in her life where they had all been together for another meal? And she had been sitting, listening to Jesus at his feet, and her sister Martha was in the kitchen preparing things. Martha comes out and goes, Lord, aren't you going to tell my sister to help me? And uh, Jesus goes, look, look how he picks it up here in Luke 10. He goes, but the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. I mean, it's almost like take a chill pill. You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away 
from her. What's the one thing he taught her? Pay attention to me. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't miss me. Each day, if you will, wake up every day and realize that because of what I did for you on the cross, costly thing, now you in response and thanks can give yourself to me. You can give whatever's in your hands to me so that you won't hand me over, but you'll hand whatever's blocking between us. And as you put your attention and your trust in me, just like my grandpa did, I'll show you how to look at money, sex, and power. I'll show you how to look at music, and other things, I'll show you how to look at people and friendships and business and school and work. But if you don't make me your one thing, all bets are off. You will become a fake. And everything you do in worship will smell. It will have a rottenness to it. It'll be completely different than Mary's. Wow. So here's what I want to ask you. Is Jesus your one thing? Or are you trying to serve two masters? Have you ever come to a place where Jesus has become your one thing? I'm not talking about perfectly. We all struggle. We all will. But even when you find yourself becoming fake, do you run back? Do you show that you are genuine by saying, Jesus, keep teaching me. Be my one thing. So here's the question I want to end with this morning. Am I following Jesus more like Mary or Judas? You know, some of us want to go, well, those situations where people like that pastor of your grandpa's, man, I'm not going to follow Jesus. Jesus just says, look, you got to decide how you follow me. What are you going to do? Am I going to be your one thing? Because you can always point to other excuses and other things. Am I going to be your one thing? Are you going to follow me like Mary or Judas? So I want to just ask you to bow your heads if you would. And I want to just speak to a couple groups here in the room. Again, if you'd bow your head, I want to speak first to those of you who don't yet believe in Jesus. If you want to know more about Jesus and what it would look like for him to become your one thing, is he drawing you? Is he intriguing you? Is he, are you starting to sense, I think Jesus may be the one thing for my life, then I pray that you'll continue, whether it's our church family or find a church family where Jesus is being preached. I hope you'll take that seriously because that is the most important thing you can ever consider in your life. And I do want to remind you that sooner or later, there's coming a day when it's going to come out what you most value. Jesus says, you won't always have me. You won't always have opportunities to trust in me. So don't be cocky about this. Be careful. But maybe you've already been sensing that, and Jesus has said to you, I want you to trust me today. Today is the day of salvation. Come on. And you're there. You've done that. After one of the services, a young person came up and said, I did that. And I know that Jesus wants to do that in many people's lives in our city. So if that's you, tell somebody. After the service, tell someone. We'd be glad to help you and pray with you and help you grow in the Lord. Now I want to talk to those of you that call yourselves followers of Christ. Here's a question. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, do you think about Jesus? Do you love him more than anything else? 
Or has he been putting his finger on something that is now you're holding on to? You, you had a hard time or will not let go of it. It's making you a fake. And he's saying, give it to me. It may be expensive for you to do that. It may be costly. It may be hard. But will you give it to me? Because I'll show you how to do everything else if I become your one thing. Are you there? Could you surrender it today in a fresh way? That would be huge. And it would move you from being a fake to showing that you're genuine. Now, Lord, I pray that we will see ourselves before you and that you will show us where we really are with this. It's so easy to point to other people or criticize how other people are honoring you. It's just you and me, you're saying. I pray we'll listen to you. Help us be real with you. Amen. And uh, Jenny's going to sing a song that really is a prayer. If this is your heart, listen to her sing it and see if you can affirm it in your heart. I want to ask the prayer team to come down front. As I mentioned at the top of the service, this is hard. I don't know what you signed up for to follow Jesus, but he promised it would be hard. He promised that you would be swimming against the flow. He told you that there was an enemy who would try and do everything he could to distract you or discourage you. He told us this. We need each other. We need the body of Christ. We need his word. We need his spirit. We need all the armor that he's given us. And so if you want to pray with someone after the service, maybe you've trusted Christ today. All of heaven rejoices, the Bible says, when we repent and trust in Christ. That is how much it is for us. But if you've trusted Christ, tell someone, like the young person did after the service. But maybe you just need someone to pray. I prayed with a family after the last service. Man, their child is far from God and heading very quickly the wrong direction. We've got lots of those situations in our church, and it, it's hard. So we want to pray together. We want to strengthen one another. Let me pray for you as we close, okay? Here we go. Now, Lord... Thank you so much for Mary's response to you. Because really it's just an echo of what you did for us. When you decided what you would offer to your Heavenly Father, it was your sacrifice on the cross so that we might be saved and forgiven. And so Mary is such a picture of a great response to your great gift. Now as we walk out of here, let us start every morning remembering your great gift and grace to us. That is why we're loved and accepted, not because of our performance. And help us each day to say, Lord, show me how to give my whole life back to you, holding nothing back. Teach me. And when I fail, help me to get up and keep walking with you. And I pray we'll be a church that's the real deal. No imposters. And everyone agreed and said, amen. God bless you.